Good morning. Can we have the children please come forward for children's time? Good morning, good morning. Good morning. Everybody ready for Halloween? You ready for Halloween? Good morning and welcome to worship. Halloween's right around the corner. Ready? Yeah, you guys ready for it? Yeah, it's fun. Always a lot of fun, Halloween time. All right, so today we're continuing to learn about Abraham and Sarah, and now today we're going to be talking about their son. See, now Abraham and Sarah, they had they'd traveled a long ways, they had set up, they were waiting, and then they got some visitors. They had three visitors come. And it turns out these visitors were God that was actually coming to visit them and bringing them this message of the, that they were going to have a baby. And they were really young at the time. They were 100 years old when God came and said that they were going to have a baby. Yes. See, all things are possible with God, aren't they? All things are possible. So we're going to learn more about this. But one of the things in the story is when those three visitors came to bring this news, Abraham and Sarah, they offered them hospitality. That means they made them feel welcomed. As they showed up at their tents, they got some water so they could wash the dust off their feet because they wore sandals at the time, and they got food for them to eat, and they made them feel welcomed. Isn't it great to feel welcomed? It is. And we want to make other people feel welcomed, right? You know, we've got Halloween coming up, and then Thanksgiving, and Christmas, and all sorts of things. When we get visitors to our house, we want to make them feel welcomed, don't we? We do. When we get visitors here in our church, we want them to feel welcomed. What if, what if we get a new student to our classroom? Do we want to make them feel welcomed? Yes. Or maybe a substitute teacher? We want them to make them feel welcomed, don't we? We want to practice hospitality just like Abraham and Sarah did when those visitors came. Because those weren't just visitors, but those were sent by God. Those people were God coming to bring them this message. So we're going to go to Sunday school. We're going to learn more about Abraham and Sarah and their little baby Isaac. All right. And before we do, just remember, I know you brought in some food. You guys have been bringing in food, cereal for kids in our, our community. We're just going to put those in the, the bin. We're going to try to fill those up, especially try to fill them up with cereal so kids just like you in our neighborhood can have food to eat for breakfast. Good idea, huh? Yeah, that's right. All right, let's pray, and then we're going to go and learn some more about Abraham and Sarah. Dear God, Dear God help, us to always help us to always practice hospitality, practice hospitality and, help us to share and help us to share your love, your love with everyone we meet. Please stand as you're comfortable for opening him. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ's solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. 
All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness fills his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, on and on my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, Oh, may I then in him be found, Dressed in his righteousness alone, Faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand.
So this is the second week of our 2022 Fall Stewardship Campaign. That campaign will go to Pledge Sunday on November 20th. This week you should have received an email about the campaign and with a pledge card and reasons to use that pledge card. Regrettably, we're hearing that many of you, that email landed in your spam folder, so please check there. This morning, I'm going to spend a few moments talking to you about money and financial stewardship. This is a topic that you may be surprised to hear that Jesus spoke more about than pretty much any other topic. I recently reread an article that noted that while the Bible has about 500 verses on prayer and fewer than 500 verses on faith, there are over 2,300 biblical verses that deal with money and possessions. Our Lord said more about this topic, including heaven and hell, put together, over 10% of the New Testament relates directly to financial matters. While we can really struggle on topics such as human sexuality, we get a lot more guidance on topics such as stewardship. In fact, dealing with stewardship, I pretty much think the message is clear rock-solid, unwavering, and unchanging. Last year, I relayed my history with giving to the church and my choice to finally tithe. I figured out what I was making, took an estimate of what my investment gains and earnings were, and donated 10%. During last year's campaign, I made a pledge for this year. This year has been tough. Seems like everything costs more. I've lost more money in the stock market than any year in my life just gone. Nothing to show for it. They say it'll, the market will come back. I can only hope. Despite the losses, there has been no thought to reducing my tithe. While my stock losses leave me with nothing to show, through my participation in this church, I can regularly see what my pledge does. My pledge provides help to many others, much less fortunate than I am. I truly believe the phrase, as you did for the least of these, you did for me. My pledge helps to provide a forum where Jonathan can provide knowledge on the word of Christ that we can contemplate, better understand, and hopefully follow. My pledge provides a means to change lives by sharing the gospel and making disciples of Christ. Making and deploying disciples who put God first is our great commission, and my pledge to this church supports that. So I can cheerfully maintain my pledge despite some challenges because I see the benefits and I would ask that you prayerfully consider making a pledge and remember that each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now will the ushers please come forward for our tithes and offerings. Change our hearts this time, your word says it can be. Change our hearts this time, your life could make us free. We are the people, your call set apart, Lord, this time. Change our hearts. Now as we watch you stretch out your hands, Offering abundances, fullness of joy. 
Your milk and honey seem distant and real when we have bread and water in our hands. But change our hearts this time. Your word says it can be. Change our hearts this time. Your life could make us free. We are the people your call set apart. Lord, this time, change our hearts. The scripture this morning is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Please stand as you are comfortable and able. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And the people said, thanks be to God for the gift of scripture. Thank you and be seated. I love Halloween. I love Halloween. It is an opportunity every year to try on something that I'm not and be something that I've never been and will never be again. And I love Ted Lasso. And if you don't know who Ted Lasso is, I'm sorry. Uh, just check a little. Uh, you'll find out he is the nicest guy. I really like Halloween. It's an opportunity to try out something new. And, uh, and uh, so this is our family picture for the year. And so I shaved the beard. And uh, I thought, well, you know, rather than just explain that to everybody at church, I'll just come as Ted Lasso. <laughs> so here we are. And uh, I wish I knew all his quotes and could talk like Ted Lasso, but uh, I, I can't. I can't quite get there. Uh, 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 welcome to Chandler United Methodist Church. If this is your first time here, you have um, stumbled into a church that uh, disciples Christ-like decency, or as Ted Lasso would say, for me, success is not about wins and losses. It's about helping you be the best versions of yourselves on and off the field. We are in a series of sermons, we are approaching the halfway mark, talking about human sexuality. And I'll just tell you, I, I'm gonna take a risk. I'm gonna let you in on some biblical scholarship that is not commonly shared in churches. Preachers get scared of this kind of stuff. 
Uh, a, a lot of pastors do not bring this information, this scholarship, uh, before their congregations, uh, either because the pastor doesn't engage in biblical scholarship, which I find to be uh, irreprehensible, just awful. How can you be a pastor and not? Um, but some don't. Some go on personality and ego, and they get some where they need to go, I suppose. Uh, or, or second, pastors may engage in biblical scholarship, but they don't trust their congregation. They don't believe in the intelligence of the people they're talking to to grasp the larger images or the larger struggles uh, uh, because it upsets outdated, familiar religious thinking. But, but I think you'll be able to hear what I'm saying and, and set aside what you know and how it has come to you. Put down for a moment what you know. Let go of equating familiar and comfortable with sacred. I think you are capable of contemplating and expanding your theological perspective. So here we go. There are three New Testament passages which are purported to prove that homosexuality is a sin. Romans 1, that's the one Bill read for us this morning. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11 and 1 Timothy verse, chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. And if we explain one of them, we're going to understand all three of them. So I'm going to focus on Romans. I'll come back and talk just for a second about 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. But at first read, the text that Bill read for us this morning out of Romans is painfully direct and unmistakably clear in its accusation and its pronouncement of judgment. There's just one little problem. <laughs> Who wrote it? In 1975, uh, Dr. J.C. O'Neill wrote a book, published it. It's this little book. Uh, he's professor of New Testament at Cambridge University. And this book is called Paul's Letter to the Romans. And in it, he begins a conversation about inconsistencies occurring in Romans chapter 1, where our text came from. Specifically, this passage, Dr. O'Neill, uh, his argument has become the standard for biblical criticism, and biblical scholars worldwide have joined into this conversation, and they have identified three, count them, three substantial problems with Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. Here's the problems. Problem one, this portion verses 18 to 32 of chapter 1, is written third-person plural. They, them, themselves, the men, the women. Remember, remember tenses from back in school? Yeah, okay. Everything else in Romans, 
everything before these verses and the 15 chapters after these verses are written second person singular. You, your, yours, yourselves. Third person plural for those little verses and the rest of the book is second person singular. The second problem is that Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32 uses an entirely different vocabulary and language style than did Paul in any of his other writing or in the rest of Romans. The language and style of of this portion is Greek-Jewish anti-Gentile jargon, it's propaganda, It was popular for some years following the death of Paul, the execution of Paul. Now, teachers, and those of you who paid attention in English class, what are the first signs that material turned in by a student is not their own writing? Inconsistent tense, So changing tenses and irregular word style. You've got a third grader moving along and suddenly they're using a word that no third grader in the history of the world has ever uttered in their life. Uh, That's the second, that's the first two problems. Problem number three is that Romans 1 verses 18 to 32 articulates a theology of anger, attack, judgmentalism, condemnation with the intent of vilifying and excluding Gentiles, non-Jews, which stands counter not only to Jesus and his teaching, but also to Paul's stated mission within this book, Romans, his letter to the church at Rome. Paul says, My purpose in writing this is to heal the tattered relationship between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul spends an incredible amount of energy stating and restating that that part of having a relationship that, that is healthy means that we don't go after people in judgment. And what's really interesting to me is that most biblical scholars are on board with with accepting that this portion of, of Romans was written in by a scribe later. But, but it's the evangelicals who say no. And interestingly to me, the cornerstone of evangelical thinking is Paul's Gentile mission, taking the gospel out into the world to new people which is, this is confusing to me. It would seem to me that removing this stumbling block of scripture would be exciting for evangelical Christians, but they seem more interested in retaining the condemnation of this passage and wondering why their outreach drives people away. Because their message is two-faced. Hi, can I tell you about God's love? Scripture says God hates you. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's a little problematic. Uh, 
And so we are facing now the question, how are we going to deal with these problems? And, and the first one response is we can dismiss them. We can say, well, you know, Paul is just so angry about the sinful nature of the Gentiles that he becomes unglued in his writing. He loses perspective, he changes his language structure, and he contradicts himself for these 15 verses, and then he calms down and the rest of the book is fine. People who identify themselves as conservatives have said that's what's going on. Or we can go the other direction. We can say, well, this condemnation of homosexuality is really a misnomer because what Paul was obviously talking about was the Roman historical practice of a powerful men exploiting uh, adolescent boys. And of course we see that that's sinful, but that's exploitation, not homosexuality. And people who call themselves, it's a good argument, but people who call themselves progressive or liberal have made this argument. And neither, I, I, I find neither of those to be acceptable because neither of them deals with the real problem that we're facing here. The real problem is we have 15 verses of divisive vomit, spew, inserted into Paul's letter of reconciliation and bridge building. And, and biblical scholarship is aware of this, and biblical scholarship has a word for this. It's called interpolation. It's the addition of a passage not written by the original author. Interpolation. In 1985, 10 years after Dr. O'Neill published his book about the Romans, 1985, Dr. Calvin Porter, professor of New Testament at Duke University for a number of years, and then he moved to Cambridge as well. Dr. Porter wrote, throughout Romans, as part of his Gentile mission, Paul challenges, argues against, and directly refutes both the content of the passage found in Romans 1 verses 18 to 32 and the practice of using such discourse to judge others. The ideas in Romans 1 verses 18 to 32 are not Paul's. They are ideas which obstruct Paul's Gentile mission, theology, and practice. Without question, these verses were added by someone with their own intentions. Interpolation. The same is true for 1 Corinthians 6, verses 11, 6, uh, 9 to 11, and 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. Both of these are pastoral letters that Paul has written to hurting people, to deal with their issue at hand, to encourage them and build them up. And so, you get out your Bible and you're reading along in 1 Corinthians and it's a pastoral letter. You're reading along in 1 Timothy. It's a, it's a gentle, carefully worded, uh, care, uh, a lovely letter. And then all of a sudden there's this attack dog that comes out of the pages. The language changes, the words change, and it reveals a different author and a different purpose interpolation. The argument among biblical scholars is not 
if interpolation is occurring in these passage, passages, but especially in the case of 1 Corinthians, how much of the original, how much of what we've received can actually be attributed to Paul? It is accepted in 1 Corinthians among biblical scholars that, that some of chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 14, and 15, including the portion on women being silent in worship, were added later, probably by men. <laughs> These are not the only place that the original text has been modified by scribal manipulation. You're reading along in the Gospel of Mark, and you would rightfully begin to notice that Mark has its own rhythm and syncopation. And you're reading along, and you come near to the end in the 16th chapter, and, and you notice after verse 12 that that syncopation and that rhythm ends, and, and the word choice gets a little bit weird. And the message that you're reading is in line with everything that came before it, not contradictory to the first 16 chapters and 12 verses of Mark, but, but it's not the same. And, and somebody has tacked on something, some words. And, and, and we read that and we haven't removed it, but we certainly don't give it the same authority because it was not written by the same author as the Gospel of Mark. In the eighth chapter of John, we read the story of the woman purportedly caught in adultery being dragged into the presence of Jesus in the temple area during Passover. Your English language Bible, if you go home and get out your English language Bible, there may be a little note. It's called a gloss, a note up in the margins of your Bible on that page telling you that this story was not included in some of the original texts. Some of the original scrolls do not have this story in them. Well, we know exactly how that came to be. In the early years of the church, there was no publishing house, printing and selling Bibles. If you wanted scripture in your home, you had to know somebody who had a copy of the scripture you wanted. You would borrow it from that person. You would take it to a copyist and you would speak to them and say, I'd like you to copy this for me. Now, if I'm coming to you and you're the copyist, I might say to you, um, I want a copy of this, but I don't want the women in my household reading this portion, this story. Uh, I want you to leave that out. I don't want uppity women around my house. You will do that. I'm the paying customer. I'm paying you. If, if, if you don't leave it out, I'm not going to pay you when I pick up the copy. And, and you can count on the fact that I will be checking for that. You leave it out. You leave out what I don't want. And it is no mystery how a Greek Jewish copyist somewhere in the first 20 or 30 years after the death of Paul, somebody who was not happy with Christianity welcoming Gentiles added verses 
and copying the text, added verses of the harshest, judgmentalist, propagandist that their mind could muster and, and pull up into Paul's letters, interpolation. And so knowing this, what do we do? Uh, well, as your pastor, well, yeah, uh, I would um, suggest caution and slow movement. Sort of like when you're getting out of the dentist's chair after having teeth extracted. And that's exactly what I'm suggesting that we have done and that we do. That we extract very sharp teeth that do not belong in the proclamation of the gospel. Yes, I am. I am saying that we should read out these verses from Paul's letters. They contradict the mission and the message and the ministry of Paul, as well as Jesus, both of which made painfully clear that our primary responsibility is to love others. They also made clear the danger of judging anyone. It was Jesus who said, when you go out of your way to judge others, you're standing on the edge of hellfire. I'm going to tell you, these passages do not belong. I want to invite you to decline to acknowledge them as valid. I don't know if you've noticed, but we don't say the Word of God for the people of God in church and when we read Scripture. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. It's because we are thinking, intelligent people. We engage biblical scholarship. And not everything that is in the Bible that we received is the Word of God. Some of it is the Word of Paul. Some of it is the Word of Jesus, yes. And some of it are the words of Jewish copyists who are angry about Gentiles coming into the church. And here's what happens when we read out these portions that do not belong. Paul's letter to the Romans makes sense from beginning to end. His mission to build the relationship between Jews and Gentiles unfolds from beginning to end. Paul's letter is 16 coherent chapters on the opportunity, because of God's love for us, the opportunity that we have to be united with others in love. And the same holds true for 1 Corinthians. Chapter 13, the one we like to read at weddings, love is patient and kind. It makes sense now with the rest of 1 Corinthians. It doesn't contradict what comes before it. Uh, uh, and Paul's pastoral letter to Timothy outlines the nature of the church and the mission of the church without having a confusing, discordant, disturbing attack dog come jumping out in, in the middle. This blast of condemnation that someone else wrote into 1 Timothy. Paul's repeated message in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, and to Timothy is that what unites us with God is not our removal of sin. 
That was the argument of the establishment people. Those are the folks that Paul and Jesus worked against. Paul's message is that it is God who created us and values us and loves us all without exception, that nothing comes between us and God's love, and therefore nothing stands between us and loving one another. Paul also says that God's love for us is completed in our love for others. And, and we know where he got that. He got that from um, uh, Jesus. We also know exactly what the establishment people did to Paul and to Jesus before him. Both of them were killed for including people that the established people wanted left out. Jesus is the one we follow. Jesus is the one we imitate. It is a very difficult challenge. It is a difficult discipleship. It's something we have to try on and walk around in and see if it can fit us. Very difficult challenge. Or as Ted Lasso would say, taking on a challenge is a lot like riding a horse. If you're comfortable while you're doing it, you're probably doing it wrong.
May the Spirit of God whom we see and follow in the person of Jesus Christ go before you to show you the way, behind you to nudge you forward when you are too scared to move on your own, above you to watch over you, beside you to be sometimes your only friend. And within you to give you peace, go always in the peace of Christ. Now let's get out there and play a good game. <laughs> My life flows on in endless song Above earth's lamentation I hear the clear, though far off hymn That hails a new creation No storm can shake my inmost calm While to that rock I'm clinging since love is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing?